Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Marx Brothers, Cedric J. Robinson. The Scottish philosopher David Hume's 1740 Treatise of Human Nature is widely appreciated today as a masterwork of modern European philosophy. But when Hume first published the book, it did not receive much attention. He famously described it in a later writing as having fell dead-born from the press. Our subject in this episode, the African-American historian and political theorist Cedric J. Robinson, published a book in 1983 titled Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. In ways that are somewhat camouflaged by the book's title, this was a very philosophically ambitious work, just as was Hume's treatise. It is perhaps fitting, then, that the book initially issued forth from the London-based publisher Zed Press to a similarly lifeless reception. Some of the first scholars to draw attention to the book's value in the late 1980s were professional philosophers. Leonard Harris, who appeared on the podcast back in episode 79, drew on Robinson's notion of a black radical tradition in his 1987 article, Historical Subjects and Interests, Race, Class, and Conflict. Cornell West, who we will be discussing in an upcoming episode, published a review essay on Black Marxism in 1988, aiming to interrupt the silence surrounding the book. He lamented that it had already fallen through the cracks and argued that it should now be acknowledged as a towering achievement, even as he went on to make serious criticisms of the book over the course of his review. Someone else who early on recognized the importance of Black Marxism is the historian Robin G. Kelly, who provided a foreword when the book was republished in a new edition by the University of North Carolina Press in the year 2000. The story of his encounter with the book is indicative of the power of its title to intrigue and potentially mislead. Affirming in no uncertain terms that this book changed his life, Kelly explains that he was just a few months into his graduate studies at UCLA when a review copy was sent to Ufa Hamu, a graduate student journal published by the university's African Studies Center. Kelly had previously heard nothing about the book or its author, who was then director of the Center of Black Studies at the nearby UC Santa Barbara. The book's title automatically attracted Kelly. His interest in historical research at that point was primarily motivated by his concern to, as he put it, know how to build a left-wing movement among people of color so that we could get on with the ultimate task of making revolution. Given this interest, the book titled Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition, seemed almost heaven-sent. Kelly excitedly set himself the task of reviewing it for Ufahamu. He never did manage to write that review, something he admits meant contributing unwittingly to the conspiracy of silence that has surrounded the book since its publication. The problem was that Kelly felt so overwhelmed by reading Black Marxism that he suffered a crisis in confidence, which he managed to fix only by calling Robinson on the telephone and begging to be taken on as a student. It was an understandable reaction. It is indeed an overwhelming work. The footnotes alone could make for a whole separate book. It's also a surprising book. Given the title, one might expect a sympathetic or at least constructively critical account of Black Marxist thought and activity. What Kelly and readers since have found instead is a searing critique of Marxism's limitations and a definition of Black radicalism grounded not in Marxism, but in a unique interpretation of indigenous African traditions. Here is how Kelly sums up the work. Robinson literally rewrites the history of the rise of the West from ancient times to the mid-20th century, tracing the roots of black radical thought to a shared epistemology among diverse African people 
and providing a withering critique of Western Marxism and its inability to comprehend either the racial character of capitalism and the civilization in which it was born or mass movement outside Europe. Especially since its republication in 2000, black Marxism has become much more widely appreciated and has even attained a level of influence among activists beyond the academy. The phrase racial capitalism, for instance, has become widely used in many activist circles, mainly through Robinson's influence. The phrase had already been used before him by South African historians Martin Leikasek and David Hemson in their 1976 pamphlet, Foreign Investment and the Reproduction of Racial Capitalism in South Africa. But Robinson denied having learned the phrase from them. Indeed, while Legasik and Hemson sought merely to show how apartheid and capitalism worked hand in hand in the case of South Africa, Robinson's claim in the first chapter of Black Marxism was much broader and much bolder, namely that capitalism is always inextricably intertwined with racism. All capitalism is racial, according to Robinson, because it grew out of a proto-racist context, and as he goes on to show in later parts of the book, developed in lockstep with the racism of the Atlantic slave trade. In an essay published more than a decade later called Slavery and the Platonic Origins of Anti-Democracy, Robinson went so far as to trace the patterns of thought we associate with modern slavery right back to Plato's Republic. He finds in that dialogue an oppressive slave-owning ideal society that can justify itself only with a racial myth. This refers to the infamous noble lie, according to which the people of the city are divided into classes and told that this assignment is due to the different metals in their blood. Robinson points out that even Plato's diagnosis of how cities go wrong is fundamentally elitist. Despite the many popular revolts that occurred in his own time, Plato assumes that corruption of the political system can only spread from the top down. It is as if, comments Robinson, the rest of Greek humanity was not real to him. Robinson goes on to connect what he views as Plato's proto-racism to a classic example of modern racism we have had occasion to mention a number of times on this podcast, Thomas Jefferson's thoughts on black inferiority in his Notes on the State of Virginia. Connecting this with other forms of elitism expressed by America's founding fathers, Robinson concludes, in its anti-democratic, plutocratic prejudice, the Republic provides an authority rich in intellectual stratagems apropos to the political discourse embedded in the American political order. Plato survives because if he had not existed, he would have had to be invented. This rather critical interpretation of ancient and modern Western thought usefully illustrates Robinson's methods, themes, and historical and intellectual range. It presumably also helps to make it clear that his critique of Marxism in Black Marxism was not born out of conservatism or a desire to defend capitalism. A look at his life story will provide further confirmation of that. Robinson was born in 1940 and grew up in Oakland. The family's story, illustrative of the drama and heartache of the Great Migration, was that his grandfather had fled to California from Alabama after beating a white man for attempting to have his way with Robinson's grandmother. Robinson attended UC Berkeley, where he was a student activist with the NAACP. He worked to bring iconic leaders like Robert F. Williams, who we discussed in episode 110, to speak on campus. An attempt to bring Malcolm X to the campus was blocked by the university, but Robinson and his fellow organizers were still able to hear him speak at a local YMCA. This encounter with X made a major impact on another figure we've discussed before, Donald Warden, who founded the Afro-American Association. As we noted in episode 111, Warden's Afro-American Association was a campus reading group that gradually moved toward off-campus activism and in the process provided an intellectual training ground for both the Black Panthers and Maulana Karenga, 
Robinson was part of the group, as was his good friend, a graduate student from India named Shyamala Gopalan, and the man she married, a graduate student from Jamaica named Donald Harris. The fact that Gopalan and Harris met through the Afro-American Association is a rather significant historical event, given that the first child produced by their marriage is the current Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. We're not sure whether the Vice President has read Black Marxism, but we wouldn't be surprised. After all, her mother is listed in the book's preface as among those with whom the project had its beginnings. In 1962, Robinson went to Africa as part of a government project called Operation Crossroads Africa. He spent the most time in what is now Zimbabwe, but was then still southern Rhodesia, and he was struck by his encounter with Ndabaningi Sitole, whose 1959 book African Nationalism was a pioneering work of autobiography and anti-colonial political analysis. Upon his return, he was drafted, but fortunately never deployed to Vietnam. From then on, his life was lived within academia. He attained a master's degree in political science from San Francisco State, and then a PhD in the same discipline from Stanford, enjoyed a fruitful research stay in England, funded by a previous supporter of this podcast, the Lieberhume Trust, and then held posts at the University of Michigan and SUNY Binghamton, before taking up leadership of the Center of Black Studies at UC Santa Barbara, as previously mentioned. If it is not the most eventful of biographies in political terms, in contrast with the life of his fellow California academic Angela Davis, Robinson's life was plenty stimulating on the intellectual front. It can seem like every figure who has come up in this podcast series is either mentioned in Black Marxism or met Robinson personally, or both. The book cites, among others, Sheikh Anta Diop, Oliver Cox, Eric Williams, Amokad Cabral, Alexander Crummel, Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, Carter G. Woodson, Henry Turner, Edward Blyden, J.J. Thomas, and the American Negro Academy. As for his personal contacts, they included C.L.R. James and Walter Rodney, who came to speak at Michigan while Robinson was there. At a single event held at the Center of Black Studies in 1989, Robinson spoke alongside Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, Kobina Mercer, and Sylvia Winter. We'll be covering her next time. This man's address book could, with light editing, be used as the table of contents for a book on Africana thought in the late 20th century. He used his connections with other intellectuals to bring attention to current events, at home or abroad. For example, he worked on finishing Black Marxism during the 1981-1980 school year in England, funded by a postdoctoral fellowship. This brought him to London not long after the Black community there was rocked by the mysterious New Cross house fire, which killed 13 Black young people, and a series of riots in response to racial discrimination. During his stay, Robinson worked with the Institute of Race Relations, a British think tank, to bring over Tony Cade Bambara, whom we have recently covered as a pioneering Black feminist of the 1970s. Cade Bambara was based in Atlanta at the time, and had been consumed with the horror of the infamous child murders that took place in that city between 1979 and 1981. By bringing her to speak in England, Robinson grabbed an opportunity to draw attention, as his biographer, Joshua Myers, put it, to the global vulnerability of black children and the need for transnational resistance to racial capitalism. On the topic of his collaborations with women thinkers, we must also mention Robinson's wife Elizabeth, who was born in the U.S. to Lebanese parents and was very much his intellectual partner. She was instrumental in encouraging the project of Black Marxism and collaborated with him on a long-running series produced for local Santa Barbara radio and then public access television called Third World News Review. On October of 1983, the Robinsons reacted to the major events of the moment, the bombing of military barracks in Beirut and the U.S. invasion of Grenada, by appearing at a rally, with Elizabeth speaking about Lebanon and Cedric focusing on Grenada. 
the same year, 1983, saw the publication of Black Marxism. Distilling the argument of this book into one sentence is no easier than it was with Gilroy's Black Atlantic, but let's give it a shot. Robinson wants to argue that, despite its revolutionary intent, classical Marxism was itself a manifestation of racialized European thinking, and that Black radical thought offers a vital alternative. To establish this, he begins, as we've said, with a lengthy historical narrative. He argues that medieval slavery already anticipated the Atlantic slave trade by subjecting certain groups to unfreedom. Not for nothing does the word slave have an etymological link to the word slav. And from the very beginning of capitalism in Italian city-states, racialized slavery was part of the story. Human cargo was transported in the ships of these early capitalists. Furthermore, Europe never developed independently, but was always developing through interactions with non-European peoples, whether this meant fighting the armies of Islam or exploiting the resources and population of Africa. These interactions were fundamental to the development of modern European states and their economies, so a myopic focus on Europe's inner history can never discern the true patterns of that history. Robinson detects just such myopia in the thought of Marx and Engels. Much as it just didn't occur to Plato that the lower classes might be the potential revolutionaries in classical Greece, it just didn't occur to the classical Marxists that anyone but the European proletariat could be the historical engine of revolution. The root of the methodological and conceptual flaws, says Robinson, is the presumption that the social and historical processes that matter, which are determinative, are European. Because it overlooked the crucial racial part of racial capitalism, Marxism's critique of capitalism was doomed to be at best incomplete. As Robinson puts it, Marxism is itself a Western construction that incorporated theoretical and ideological weaknesses that stemmed from the same social forces that provided the basis of capitalist formation. So, that's the gist of the first half of Black Marxism. It paves the way for the second half, in which Robinson shows how Black radicals have done exactly what classical Marxism could not have expected, by posing a more adequate critique from outside the traditional European framework. Robinson retains enough of a Marxist outlook to imply that the emergence of such a critique was inevitable. Black radical ideology was, he says, a historical anti-logic to racism, slavery, and capitalism, and in forming that ideology, black thinkers of the 19th and 20th centuries were discovering their theoretical task. There's a resonance here with Robinson's doctoral thesis, later published under the title The Terms of Order, Political Science and the Myth of Leadership. Again, this is an ambitious and complicated work, but we can just note one of its central themes, which is that political leaders do not come up with ideas or projects and then take the people with them, as usually assumed. Rather, they emerge as more or less inevitable crystallizations of the concerns the people already have. Robinson thus writes, It is in truth the charismatic figure who has been selected by social circumstance, psychodynamic peculiarities and tradition, and not his followers by him. One example Robinson discussed in depth was Malcolm X who had been the subject of his very first academic publication. In a subsequent lecture, Robinson said, it was not important that he say something new. It was not important that he articulate novel insights. It was important that he reflect the historical experiences, the understanding, the comprehension of the masses of black people in this country and in the Caribbean. He did not say anything new. It was the organized presentation, which was new. Something similar could be said of the radicals at the center of black Marxism. Though classical Marxism was flawed, its proponents were right to discern a dialectical historical process that would generate resistance to capitalist oppression. In fact, Marxism even implies its own critique, pointing beyond itself toward a further line of analysis that it was too limited to grasp because of its European roots. 
But just as leaders are selected by their followers, so radical theorists do not create potentially revolutionary forces, they only notice and describe them. Marx and Engels were not members of the proletariat, they were educated intellectuals. And likewise, the black radicals who most powerfully articulated an anti-racist, anti-European ideology were almost without exception members of what we might nowadays call the black middle class. Robinson instead uses the Marxist technical term petit bourgeoisie and observes that a long line of Africa thinkers belong to this group, like George Padmore, C.L.R. James, Eric Williams, and Oliver Cox. All of them, says Robinson, illustrate Franz Fanon's phrase, black skins under white masks. We've seen this point before, albeit in a rather different context, when Amilcar Cabral posited that petit bourgeois men like himself were called to lead the popular uprising in Guinea-Bissau in an act of class suicide. The point was also made by C.L.R. James, with reference to Aimé Césaire, who went to the Sorbonne and taught Latin, Greek, and French literature in Martinique. Césaire, observed James, was able to make this ferocious attack upon Western civilization because he knew it inside out. He had spent some 20 years studying it. Three black radicals in particular receive especially extensive attention in black Marxism. They are W.E.B. Du Bois, C.L.R. James, and Richard Wright, all of whom were attracted to Marxist thought, but eventually, according to Robinson, saw its weaknesses. All three pointed to the fact that black people, and non-Europeans more generally, are not fated to be the inert subject matter of history, but agents who can be producers of ideologies, epistemologies, producers of history. Robinson recognizes Du Bois as especially pioneering, because he was the first to discern the deep connections between racism and capitalism, to see that racial oppression was a long-standing part of the economic system, and not an aberration or mistake. James then added something new with his account of the Haitian Revolution. Here was a concrete demonstration that the revolutionary proletariat did not have to be European factory workers. Instead, the Africans had constructed their own revolutionary culture. The lesson drawn by Robinson is that it was the materials constructed from a shared philosophy developed in the African past and transmitted as culture from which revolutionary consciousness was realized and the ideology of struggle formed. As he says here, Robinson sees the cultural heritage of Africa and the diaspora as an important counterweight to capitalist imperialism. The imperialists know this too, which is why they always try to undermine indigenous culture, the point we've seen and heard Ngugi Tsiongo making eloquently. Robinson writes that French colonialism always attempted to destroy the people's culture in order for those people to become appropriate citizens in the French empire. Thus, a favorite line of Robinson's, the first attack is an attack upon culture. Since the best defense is a good offense, black radicals have responded with a cultural attack of their own, subjecting white power structures to withering criticism. A good example is the third hero of black Marxism, Richard Wright, who was unusual in not coming from a middle-class background. Perhaps for this reason, he saw in all black people the potential for challenging Western civilization itself. Wright is also important to Robinson because he most obviously went from embracing Marxism to transcending it. As you might remember, Wright joined but then split from the communists. In episode 94, we quoted him saying that they could not help him realize the ambition of uniting scattered but kindred peoples into a whole. Robinson summarizes Wright's realization in the following terms. Though immersed in the American radical movement with its Eurocentric ideology, it had not taken Wright very long to reach the conclusion that the historical development of black people in the United States constituted the most total contradiction to Western capitalist society. 
how would Robinson have seen his own contribution within the radical tradition of Du Bois, James, and Wright? Well, for one thing, he was no ivory tower academic. As we've seen, he was active in the NAACP as a student, and at UCSB, he supported such actions as a strike in 1998. But in terms of his intellectual work there, it would be fair to stress above all his leadership of the Center of Black Studies. Nowadays, when many universities have programs, degrees, and centers in Black, African, Africana, or African-American studies, we can easily take such institutions for granted. But their establishment was hard won, and in the early stages, their project needed to be explained and theorized. One of Robinson's UCSB colleagues, Fred Moten, has done this in rather blunt terms and in the process made it clear that the enterprise was never a narrowly academic one. If Black Studies is a critique of Western civilization, you challenge the metaphysical foundations of the goddamn civilization, and that actually manifested itself at the level of your own ethical comportment in the world. For a take on this discipline that is more typical of Robinson himself, we can turn to another of his essays, David Walker and the Precepts of Black Studies. It's one of a number of pieces, many of them previously unpublished, collected in a volume entitled Cedric J. Robinson on Racial Capitalism, Black Internationalism, and Cultures of Resistance. The essay on Walker, delivered in 1997 at a Black Studies conference at Ohio State University, is typical, firstly, in that his discussion is framed historically, and also because Robinson was rarely happy to do just one thing at a time. He wants simultaneously to highlight the pioneering radicalism of Walker's incendiary appeal, show that Walker, in a sense, was already calling for something like Black Studies, and draw lessons for current-day practitioners. His historical sensibility leads him to contest attempts to connect Walker to Black nationalism. His targets here include Wilson Moses, yet another former podcast interview guest, and Sterling Stuckey. Robinson's dispute with Stuckey is particularly interesting because Stuckey's 1987 book, Slave Culture, Nationalist Theory and the Foundations of Black America, has striking thematic and structural similarities with Black Marxism. Against these interpreters, Robinson argues that Walker cannot be easily appropriated because he is non-modern. His ideas were embedded in a religious worldview bound up with ideas of divine providence and retribution in ways that few Black thinkers in the later 20th century would recognize as live options. Yet, Walker still provides a model to imitate because he glimpsed the idea of Black studies. That is, he envisioned an intellectual project that was emancipatory and populist, employing inquiry for the purpose of mobilizing for deliberate and informed social action. Walker's appeal urged Black people to understand their own history and the achievements of their people, imploring his readers, go to work and enlighten your brethren, which is, when you boil it down, exactly what Robinson did. This very podcast can be considered a contribution to Black studies, and so in our own way, we are following in Walker's and Robinson's footsteps. And of course, we're far from the only ones. Next time, we'll look at another pioneering figure of this academic field. As they say on Game of Thrones, next time, winter is coming. Sylvia Winter, that is, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>